Thank you, Lorette. Thank you, team. Good morning. My name's Rob. I'm one of the pastors here. It's really great to have you join us this morning. And a special welcome if you're here for the very first time. We hope that you'll visit the I'm New desk after the service today as our kids make their way out. I mean, I have many things to thank you for. Um, One of them is just the way that you've continued to step up to volunteer. As you know, we're kind of in this season um, where people aren't fully comfortable coming back, so we're not working with full volunteer lists, but you continue to step up and help us do the things we need to do. We thank you for that. Thank you for your ongoing generosity as we as a church continue to meet our financial needs and be able to be a blessing to the city around us. And then thank you for things like our our fund to raise funds for the Ukraine. We've now passed over $30,000 for that. So thank you for your ongoing generosity as we continue to to pray for those impacted by the war, especially as folks now make their way even to Canada and some even here today in our service uh, from the Ukraine. So we welcome you. We're in our final Sunday today of our series uh, talking about mending relationships. So let me ask you, have you ever been in conflict with someone someone that's close to you. Maybe it's a coworker or a friend or a sibling or maybe even a parent. It's someone that you had a close relationship with and that relationship is now broken or injured and you're carrying it around. It's upsetting to you. You're thinking about it a lot. And, and there's been a moment at which you've actually imagined having a conversation with that person about this conflict trying to resolve it all by yourself, maybe while you're driving in your car. You've imagined kind of talking about this issue through as if the other person was sitting right next to you, and you imagine what you would say and how you would present your argument to them and what the kind of things that you would talk about in order to try to resolve this relationship that is so important to you. Now, if you've done this, like I have, these arguments are great because we're always right, We present our arguments clearly and perfectly with passion, clarity, and precision. And the other person never really has a good comeback for us in these arguments, partly because they're not there. They're overwhelmed by our brilliance and our articulateness. And at some point, they just turn to us and say, you know what? You're right. You did nothing wrong. I'm fully to blame for this conflict. It was all me. You are so amazing. And can I please buy you lunch? Have you ever had pretend conversations like this in your life to try to resolve a conflict? Well, here's what I know about me, and maybe it's true of you. In imaginary conversations, I am very bold, I'm very clear, and I can just really share what it is that I want to say. But when I get in person and I'm standing face to face, talking with the person I'm in conflict with, not so much. In fact, I would say one of the hardest things for you and I as humans is how it is that we navigate conflict with people that we're closest to. And I'm not talking about the normal conflict that happens in every day, people leaving dishes on the counter, fighting over directions, small frustrations at work. That's just normal part of being human. I'm thinking about those bigger issues that come up in relationships that cause a blockage, that paralyze the relationship that put friendships on hold and that leave us stuck. Where conflict acts like a logjam in the relationship and the relationship is not going to move forward without action, without some intervention on someone's part. And in normal times, conflict is difficult. And how much more so right now with all that we have been through in these last two years? 
I was speaking with someone recently who told me that um, they needed to get their knee replaced. Their knee, uh, they, the doctor told them that your knee is just bone on bone. There's no cushion there anymore. That after years of walking and running, that you've worn out all the cartilage. It's just bone on bone, which is why every time you walk, every time you move, it's painful. And I thought, you know, that's a true metaphor for many people in relationships. There's no margin left. There's no cushion. The relationship feels like bone on bone. There's no energy to do the heavy lifting that's required to have healthy relationships, to deal with conflict. The kind of work that's required to be a good listener, to reflect and listen to say, what am I doing that's bringing conflict to this relationship? And all of the emotions that people are living with, whether it's anger, frustration, sadness, disappointment, grief, all carrying all of this around with, on top of two years of a global pandemic makes it really challenging to sort out all that's going on in these relationships. And here's the thing. These are people that we love, people that we care about. We want them in our life. We want to have healthy, functional relationships with these people. But right now, they're stuck. And we know that they're not going to get unstuck unless someone acts and moves first. Because we don't want to get to the point where in five years, 10 years, 20 years, we're looking back and saying, we haven't spoken. There's been no communication and we've lost that time. Now, while we think about conflict and how it is that we handle conflict, we all have a manual. So this is the manual for my car. I drive a little Prius. Some of you have made fun of me in the past for this. But now with gas prices at $2 a liter, not so much. This is a manual. I open it up. It's a step-by-step instructions. How to change the light bulbs how to change the oil, how to deal with, how to change the radio stations, all these kinds of things. And you and I all have a manual, a step-by-step instruction on how to deal with conflict that we've learned from the homes that we grew up in, right? That in the home that you grew up in, you watched how conflict was dealt with, you saw how people handled it, and you kind of learned that as this is how you do it. And you have employed probably something very similar in your own life over the years. Maybe in your home, you dealt, like, dealt with conflict by diving right in. You got loud. You took no hostages. There was an argument. Yelling was normal. And you just got after it. Maybe that was how your family dealt with conflict. Maybe your family avoided conflict at all costs. And when someone got angry or there was an outburst, everybody got quiet. We just sat there. And then we pretended like nothing happened. We pushed it all deep down inside. And then we created this minefield in our home of all kinds of issues and things that we're never going to talk about. Or maybe you became passive aggressive and there was slamming cupboard doors or maybe someone in your family dealt with conflict through sarcasm. Or maybe you grew up in a home where you had some skills and we talked things out and worked things out. Now what makes managing conflict so difficult is I have a manual of how to deal with conflict, and you have a manual of how to deal with conflict. And my guess is they're different. And it's different for your coworkers, people that you work with. Maybe your spouse, if you got married, you recognize they learned to deal with conflict in a very different way than I did, and so on and so forth. Well, as disciples of Jesus, 
who are called to allow the Holy Spirit to search us and to know us, one of the things that mature Christians do, one of the things that mature humans do is we become aware of the unhealthy ways that we are tempted to deal with conflict. And we deal with it. We work at it. We figure it out so that we can learn to handle it in a different way. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, where Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, describing for us what disciples look like, what the discipled life looks like, it says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are children of God. Jesus did not say, blessed are those who get even. Blessed are those who pay people back for what they did to me. He also didn't say, blessed are those who avoid conflict. Blessed are those who just think we should all be nice and everything should be nice, so let's not deal with anything that makes us uncomfortable and sweep it all under the rug. No, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Those who recognize that there's conflict in a relationship and we do the hard work of making Now, one of the common attitudes that I see often in Christians, which I think comes from a very, very good place, is that we settle for what what we would call false peace. There is this haunting line in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14, where the prophet is saying to the people of God, for prophets to priests, they're all frauds, so people like me. They're superficial treatments for my people's mortal wound. They say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Jeremiah is saying there's a temptation when there's real issues to be dealt with just to pretend that they're not there, gloss over them, and just say, peace, peace. But there really is no peace. And because conflict is hard, challenging, it requires us to look inside to see what we might have done to contribute to the complications. There's a, tempting, a temptation to, to adopt false peace. Let me give you some examples of what it might look like. Tom's a manager at work. He has daily meetings and he's upset with an employee who constantly shows up late for meetings. He says nothing. Why? He's a Christian. He wants to be a good witness. And he thinks that being a Christian means being nice. The result is he ends up living with low boiling anger towards his coworker. He is a false peacemaker. Ellen loves her parents. They're both quite critical of how she raises her children. Each holiday is filled with tension. She doesn't say anything because she doesn't want to hurt their feelings. So she starts lying about why she can't come over for Thanksgiving and Christmas and eventually gets her kids to join in on the lies and lie too so that they don't have to go visit her parents. She's a false peacemaker. Henry attends meetings at the church. Some of you are going to peek up here. And when issues come up that they disagree with, they don't say anything because they're church meetings. And aren't we just supposed to be nice at church meetings? I don't want to be seen as negative. So he says nothing. But then he goes home and he's angry and resentment grows towards other leaders. Again, this is false peace. Do you get the idea of how our fear of conflict, of having healthy relationships, oftentimes mean we put ourselves in situations where we pretend that they're is peace. And it comes back to this misunderstanding that being a Christian means being nice and never rocking the boat and never talking about uncomfortable things that are going on in our relationships. Jesus did not avoid conflict. Jesus overturned tables in the most extreme example. 
He challenged the disciples. He challenged the Pharisees. He addressed issues in people's lives. He did so very lovingly and graciously. Think of the encounter of the woman at the well. He had a conversation with her and in time helped her deal with some of the issues in her life. Listen to these words from Jesus. Don't imagine that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Mm. I've not come to, I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. Ooh. What is Jesus talking about here? He's saying, I've come to disrupt the false peace that might be in your life. And it's going to get uncomfortable at times, whether it's in your spiritual life, whether it's in your family life, whether it's in your life as a community. We're going to go to the uncomfortable places so that you can have real peace. Because Jesus is not content to let us live in lies and falsehood. Uh, Pete Scazzaro, who is one of the authors of a book that we've been using to roughly frame this teaching series around, says this, True peacemakers love God, others, and themselves enough to disrupt false peace. You can't have the true peace of Christ's kingdom with lies and pretense. They must be exposed to the light and replaced with the truth. This is the mature, loving thing to do. Can I add there? This is the mature, loving, difficult thing to do. So I want us to talk for a few minutes about how it is as Christians who want to follow Christ, who want to let the love of God be at work in our hearts, that we could handle these conflicts that we might have with people that we love and care about that are stuck and will not be changed until there is some action. I've created a more detailed, some ideas for how to deal with conflict on a piece of paper. They're at the Welcome Center. You can grab one. If you're watching online today, email us at the office and we would be happy to send you one as well. But what I want to talk about in these next few moments is not necessarily four steps to fixing a relationship. I want to talk about the posture of our hearts as we seek to have these kinds of conversations, which to me, for me, is the starting place. The posture of our hearts. Let me read for you a passage in Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 27, going to verse 31. Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 27, going to verse 31. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, but I, tell you who, but I tell you who hear me, which is Jesus' way of saying, what am I going to say is going to be hard for you to hear? Some of you are not going to want to hear it. But if you're open, if this is an area you are serious about doing business with, hear me. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, Turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking also your tunic. I know all of you have given away a tunic or two. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. And this is the phrase that captures it all. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Maybe you didn't realize that what came from the Bible, one of the teachings of Jesus. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, I'm going to say this, and I've said this before. If you're in a relationship that is emotionally or physically dangerous, these verses do not apply to you today. And I would encourage you um, to find someone that you trust to talk to about the situation you're in so that you can get help. For those of us who are wrestling kind of in normal, everyday kind of conflict in relationships with people that we love, let me just talk for a second about the rules of engagement that Jesus is talking about here. 
He's saying peacemaking is not about getting even. It's not even about winning. And it's not about proving how wrong the other person is. This is about our posture as we think about engaging conversations with people in areas where there might be conflict. And he starts out here. Can you get to the place where you remember that you love this person? It's where Jesus starts. Can you get to the place where you remember and reconnect with your love for this person? Maybe it's a family member, a friend. Maybe it's a church member. Maybe it's someone that you work with. It has to start there. We have to start from a posture of God loves this person and I love them as well. Can you find that space? Yes, there's been hurts, there's been challenges, but can you get to the place where you would even say out loud, I love this person? This is profound because once we've reconnected with our love for this person, then Jesus says, then we act. And we must always act out of love, not out of revenge, not out of resentment, not out of anger, not out of a desire to show them how much they've hurt us, but out of love. In fact, the, distru- the instructions of Jesus are always calling us to respond out of love. And then Jesus has that line, do unto others as you would have them do to you. So how would you like this person that you're in conflict to treat you as you work this out? How would you like them to speak to you? How would you like them to treat you How would you like them to respond when you call them and they pick up the phone or when you shoot them a text and they text back? And could you think about acting this way towards them? And depending on how long the conflict has gone on and how personal it's gotten and how hurt you've been, this might take some time. In the instructions that I put at the Welcome Center, I would encourage you not to do anything until you've prayed fervently for at least one week over this situation, asking God to soften your heart till you can get to a place of love first and say, that's the starting point. Now, as a pastor, one of the most painful lessons um, that I've learned and that I see is that it takes two people to repair a relationship. That no matter how much one person wants peace, no matter how hard they pray, no matter how humble they are, no matter how introspective and clear they are in the part that they've brought to the relationship that's left it broken, if the other person does not want it fixed, it won't be fixed. And we talked about in this series that the goal of mending relationships isn't that every relationship would get fixed because I just know that's not realistic. The goal is that you would have no regrets about it. And that as far as it depends on you, you would have peace about, I tried, I prayed, I got my heart in the right space, I offered an opportunity to get together to talk about it. Sadly, it was fruitless. And so we've got peace about where it is and we can move on. Now, we've been talking about a lot of really heavy things over these last number of weeks. Someone jokingly said to me, it feels like we're doing group counseling. Kind of, maybe, maybe. It's only been two years of a pandemic. But what I want you to hear is that this is 100% rooted to our walk with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And that as we welcome Jesus to be Lord over our lives, it means allowing him to be Lord over those relationships. It means allowing him to speak to us about ways and things in our heart that need to be addressed in order that we can learn to love each other well. 
And that is we're learning to love God and let God transform us from the inside out. It means recognizing at times that sin has harmed us. It has twisted our ability to have healthy relationships. And we need to recognize the impact of that. And as disciples, relearn ways, the ways of Jesus, so that we can learn to love people better. This is part of the work that God wants to do. It's part of the sanctifying work that God wants to do. And as we close today, if we've achieved nothing else, I want each of us to leave here with a deep belief that God is not done with me yet. That God has not done his work in my heart. When the Scazzeros wrote this material, they had done, been part of a national survey of Christians and they discovered that 85% of Christians felt stuck in their relationship with God. Think about that for a second. 85% of Christians feel stuck. And they aren't stuck because they can't read their Bible and they aren't stuck because they, they don't pray. They're stuck because they can't get past their anger, their resentment. They're paralyzed when they think about um, other people. Their insecurities sabotage their relationships. All of these issues which live beneath the surface have the power to undo not just our relationships, but leave us feeling stuck in our walk with Christ. And so we all as disciples open our hearts and say, Lord, finish what you started in me. Finish what you started in me. I got stuff in here that I need to deal with. Lord, would you finish what you started in me? And the goal is greater freedom, greater peace, a greater capacity to love other people well. There's no greater example of this in the New Testament than the Apostle Peter. If you've ever read through the Gospels, you're, you know, Peter wasn't really a great disciple from the get-go. He had all kinds of challenges. He was harsh. He was aggressive. He was impulsive. Jesus was constantly working to correct him. But there's two letters by him that end up in the New Testament, which give us a hint that he had matured. He had been transformed in his life. In fact, there's this wonderful verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, where Peter writes this. He says, and now this good news of the gospel of Jesus has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And listen to this. It is so wonderful. This good news of Jesus is so wonderful that even the angels e are eagerly watching these things happen, that even the angels are like amazed at the goodness of God in the lives of people. And as I read that verse, I can't help but thinking that Peter himself was struck by how wonderful God's grace was to continue to transform him from someone that was quick to pull a sword, quick to be impulsive, quick to be mean, into the kind of person that God would use to write the scriptures for you and I to learn from. He was so marked by the wonder of the good news of Jesus, by the power of the good news of Jesus to change us from the inside out. Do you believe that God can do that work in you today? Do you believe that God can continue the refining work, that he can make something beautiful out of your brokenness, that he can transform those things that have been lifelong struggles in your heart, that salvation is not just about going to heaven someday. It's about the gift of the kingdom of heaven coming into our lives now, the gift of God putting our lives back together now, helping us recognize how our attitudes and actions on this side of heaven make it complicated for people to be in relationship with us, but God's restoring them now. 
This is the journey that you and I get to be on. This wonderful good news of Jesus and his transforming power still at work in us today. And that the watching world would get to see the power of God at work in my life and say, wow, God did something amazing there. Who would have thunk? And that in each of us, we would be a billboard to put on display the power of God redeeming and transforming us for the watching world to see. Let us pray. Lord, there's nothing better than you because you love us with an unconditional love that your starting point, your posture towards us is one of love. And Lord, that when you look at us, you see all the power, all the potential for your power to be working in us. That you have not given up on us. You are not finished with us. And that through a, surrender, a posture of surrender and humility, Lord, we can experience your sanctifying, transforming power. Lord, there's nothing better than you because you are gentle and you are merciful and you are in this with us for the long haul. And we thank you today that we should not expect this to be different tomorrow. But Lord, over time, as we surrender our hearts to you, you continue to do this work. And Lord, there's nothing better than you because we can count on you when it gets difficult. We can count on you even when we think about dealing with some relationships where there's conflict and all we feel is fear, we know that you're with us. And so today, Lord, we just simply open our hearts to you. We invite you to come with your power to be at work. Lord, we surrender all means and visions for our life and ask God that you would do greater and more than we could ask or imagine. And we thank you we do not have to go through this alone. We have sisters and brothers here. We have friends and family, Lord. We have your spirit living within us. And so today we ask, God, would you move in our hearts? May we be people who are growing in our capacity to love other people well. And we pray this in Christ's name.